1: The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. The government doesn't get to spare itself embarrassment at the expense of Robert and Josephine. I'm a supporter of this government, but it's an abomination. Four.
2: We don't know what's around the corner, and there's not that much time left for us. No-one's taking a lease on our lives, are they, at 83 years of age? Three
3: we can try and add to the statistical slew of information that we talk about, the real human fallout from what's happening. Two.
2: It doesn't take much to push me into a position where I sit there and have a good cry. It helps sometimes to do that, but it doesn't help to solve the problem. One.
3: We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So another blast off in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, after another mind-numbing week on planet Earth. Just seemed there was change in the air, with those calling for a more balanced approach to lockdown finding their voice, the boffins have bitten back. More terrifying predictions from the prophets of Imperial College. More warnings that the NHS can't cope. It's still October and already the Grinchers of Westminster and Whitehall have declared this year's traditional family Christmas is cancelled. Alison, it's almost Halloween, which means Bonfire Night will soon be upon us. Not that there'll be roast chestnuts and fireworks, of course. But after the week we've had, I think it's time to light the Pearson touch paper, retreat to a safe place and keep pets indoors.
1: You know what you're doing? You are making me sound like a psychotic Catherine Wheel and... You're a Roman candle. (laughs) I'm a Welsh Roman candle. You're a sparkler,
3: dear. There you go. You're a sparkler.
1: I like sparklers. Not that we're going to have any this year. This is leading to actual Planet Normal listeners writing in to Velma with, here's some ammo for Velma's statistics rant. I mean, that is what you've done to me, Halligan. No, you're the caravorderman of lockdown. I mean, (laughs) who who knows? You might end up winning rear of the year. (laughs) I think we've passed that. I think we've long, long passed that, certainly after sitting through lockdown. Absolutely, what you were saying, just when we thought things were getting a bit more in perspective, we have all the headlines, big new study from Imperial College, finding that immunity to COVID-19 may only last a few months. And the scientists said that by June, after the first wave of the pandemic, just 6% of the population had developed antibodies. And three months later, that figure had dropped to 4.4%. And conveniently, this deals a huge blow to the herd immunity theory, which has been advanced by Professor Shinetra Gupta and others. And the important thing about this, Liam, apart from the fact that it terrified all the people who were starting to feel a bit more reassured, was it was commissioned by the Department of Health And it's part of the research by Imperial that is informing the government policy. So for the benefit of Planet Normal listeners, I consulted Charlie, who is scientific advisor to Velma. Charlie said that the study, as reported in the media, was, and I quote, misleading nonsense, whipped up by idiots with a GCSE understanding of how immunity works. Of course, all antibodies fall rapidly after infection, but our immunity is stored in T cells because it's much more efficient. So Liam, I think what we've seen, something you've commented on before, is highly sensationalised and selective presentation of the science. It's not that it's not true. It's a bit like saying we've got no fruit because there are no oranges in the fruit bowl, but there are apples in the fruit bowl. So we have got some fruit.
3: That's the main point, isn't it? Even we saloon bar epidemiologists, we can read the Imperial report, we can listen to the interviews about it, and it only deals with antibodies. It doesn't deal with T-cells, which, of course, are also a very, very important part of our immune systems and our response to fighting viruses. I was really taken this week by the speech by Lord Sumption, another Mm. denizen of Planet Normal, of course. He said after this Imperial College report came out, commissioned by Whitehall, as you say, that the UK government quotes this from a former member of our Supreme Court. Mm. The UK government, quote, is deliberately stoking up fear over coronavirus in order to justify lockdown restrictions that represent the most significant interference with personal freedom in the history of our country. I think Milord does slightly exaggerate. Even as a medieval historian, I mean, feudalism was a bit more of an interference (laughs) with our personal freedoms. But the strength of the language from Jonathan Sumption really is something to behold from literally one of the finest legal minds in the world. He says future generations will look back on the measures taken to contain coronavirus, quotes, as a monument of collective hysteria Mm. and governmental folly. As Shaggy, I would say back to Velma, and this is a statistic you won't hear on the Tea Time News, deaths in hospitals in week 42, that's the week ending the 18th of October, Mm. were below the five-year average for week 42, Mm. Alison. Deaths from hospitals in week 42 were below the five-year average. So I would actually contest the whole idea of a second wave. Yes, cases are up cases are now four or five times where they were at the peak of the pandemic in early April but we're testing 12 times more people every day yeah so <laughs> it, it, obviously cases are up and then of course a lot of the PCR tests give false positives as we know and to repeat deaths in hospital in week 42 the week ending on 18th of October the latest ONS statistics are below the five year average We must keep stressing that because this isn't prophetic, mathematically driven modelling commissioned by politicians who are under pressure, created by scientists whose reputations are enormously on the line. These are the factual outcomes. And what we try and do on Planet Normal as amateur epidemiologists, yes, but experienced journalists, trained statisticians in some cases – We try to look at the historic data of what's actually happened. And if you look at what has actually happened, this idea of a second wave now engulfing us is, as Jonathan Sumption says, a monumental collective hysteria and government folly.
1: What's going on, Liam? It is very difficult, isn't it? So I feel like here we are trying to bring some positive news and believe it or not, there is positive news. So analysis of 21,000 hospital admissions showed that between March and June, deaths, even in intensive care, fell by a half from 41 to 21%. So, as I said last week, COVID is no longer a death sentence, even to the elderly. And another good piece of news this week, which got lost in all the doom and gloom, was that the vaccine that's been developed in the Oxford trial, they do think now there's an antibody response across all the age groups. And they were worried a few weeks ago that it wasn't getting a response amongst the elderly. And of course, that was a, a big cause for concern because that's our most vulnerable group. This week, We have seen what you've been saying all along, Liam, is that the UK is now facing the highest level of youth unemployment for four decades. I know from my children and their friends that that's a very real thing out there. And yet in the 0 to 59 age group, and that's everybody in education and the vast majority of the working population in that period, there were two deaths. All right. So for two deaths in the youthful and working age population, we have put in England, but mainly in the north of England, eight million people into tier three. Now, can you make some sense of that for me, please?
3: You can't make sense of it because it is, as Ian Duncan Smith said this week, utter madness. Mm -hmm. We've just had David Jameson, who's the West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner, say publicly that there will very likely, that's the quote, be civil unrest in the West Midlands in the near future, Mm. adding that, quotes, the turning point for a lot of people could be if they're made unemployed when the furlough scheme ends in just a few days' time. This is the senior cop in the West Midlands, right? He's not, you know, he's a serious man Mm. with serious responsibilities, and he is taking it upon himself after, I'm sure, enormous thought about his civic responsibilities about his leadership responsibilities of one of the biggest police forces in this country saying that his forces quotes on heavy alert for the unexpected this is the point we've reached when deaths i say again in week 42 from respiratory diseases were below the five-year average deaths from covid in the latest week that numbers are available are just one-sixth what they were at the peak And now it's the winter when you're far more susceptible Mm. to respiratory diseases. And the peak was in spring. It strikes me that Johnson, our prime minister, is in an invidious position. He obviously had a near-death experience. He obviously wants to do the right thing. He's not doing this because he's some kind of closet totalitarian. This is against his instincts. But I think he's been absolutely captured by the scientists around him scientists who are fighting for their own reputations, having effectively put the government in lockdown. And I think also that what he needs to do is look at the science or their version of the science, because, of course, this is a virus we're learning about all the time. So there isn't the science, Mm. there is science. And science is a load of very highly qualified people, most of them well-intentioned, who are fighting in the intellectual sense for the truth, a truth that we're all grappling for. But the death rate is below the five year average. And we must keep stressing that. And we're being pilloried for it, aren't we? We're being absolutely pilloried by a lot of people on social media and all the rest of it. And all the usual suspects are now saying they're using evocative language. So, you know, people like Shinetra Gupta, people like you and me, are far less qualified than her, but with a nose for public opinion and a nose for political battles when we see them, Alison, when we point out some of these factual, historic pieces of data, we are called deniers. That's outrageous language.
1: It's a very loaded word. But what I'd really like to see, Liam, is Professor Neil Ferguson in a wrestling ring with Maureen Eames from Barnsley. Now, everyone, <laughs> you can't have missed Maureen, aged 83, on the telly expressing her fairly forthright views on South Yorkshire going into tier three. And I think even more than loving Maureen was the non-speaking husband. Did you see the non-speaking husband standing next to her?
3: Did you see the suit? God, I bet those two could (laughs) dance in their day. I bet they can dance now. The pair of them above 80, they look incredibly good form. I hope I look that good at 80 if I actually make it to... 80. And, and I think what, what's happened is basically the establishment has wheeled out, you know, a kind of Maureen flattener, haven't they? <laughs> They've wheeled out a big analytical Imperial College embossed mallet to bop Barnsley's finest over the head because she was getting traction and she was speaking for a lot of people.
1: She is, but Maureen's not going quietly. And I think the point she made, which actually was, although it was very, very funny, it was just very moving because she basically said, I'm going to be gone soon. And who's going to pay for all this? The young people are going to pay for all this. And I don't want them to pay for all this. And she also revealed that she and Michael, the non-speaking husband, had had COVID and had got better and they are in their 80s. So it actually, she was living proof that it's not that bad for people. And do you remember, Liam? It was that kind of cut through moment when, do you remember when Gordon Brown was very rude about a lady called Gillian Duffy? During the election campaign, when she said she was worried about the Eastern European. Bigoted woman, he
3: said on the throat, Mike.
1: That's right. Some bigoted woman. And I think that, don't you think that that was a, that really cut through to people? And I do feel that Maureen has done that. And I have to say that my hero of the week, and I'm a bit biased, obviously, because he's Welsh, but you know that Wales has had these totally lunatic. Supermarkets can stay open, but non-essential goods like baby clothes and books are all fenced off. And a marvellous gentleman called Chris Noden from Newport in South Wales went into Tesco pushing a trolley and wearing only his underpants. And when Chris and his wife Dawn were challenged by the security... Dawn node and said the welsh government says clothes are non-essential so we've decided to prove the point and i thought <laughs> bloody good on you this is what we need more people shopping without their clothes on to point up the absolute absurdity one of the things we're seeing now is because a lot of the science isn't actually science they're talking about reducing the quarantine from 14 to 10 or even seven days because there's no compliance with it or there's very little compliance With it. So they're just altering it, which shows you, Liam, that it's not the science. And what's happened in our country? is the British people have been treated like children. So the World Health Organization specification for social distancing is one metre, but somebody on SAGE said, oh, they're too thick. They're not going to understand one metre. Let's make it two metres. And by doubling the distance from one metre to two metres, they put lots of publicans and cafes practically out of business. And I think because the rules, like the rule of six, are patently absurd because we know that in England, England, the rule of six includes children, but in Scotland and Wales, it excludes children. So how does that work? So this week we saw the broadcaster, BBC presenter Victoria Derbyshire saying... Sorry, I won't be obeying the rule of six over Christmas because that means my parents and my husband's parents can't come. And then she swiftly apologised, obviously, you know, chastised from BBC bosses on high. But in fact, what she said first is right. An enormous number of British people are going to be criminalised over Christmas if they defy this rule of six, which defies belief anyway. And I'm predicting now, Liam, we will see a week or so before Christmas, the government will change the rule of six to include children because it's patently unfair, punishing, to, we're desperate to be together with people and have some fun. So I think we're going to have a screeching U-turn and it will prove that it was stupid all along. Yeah,
3: particularly because in other parts of the UK, children don't count in the rule of six. So this is how, how I see it. I'm not saying that this is easy for the government, not for one minute. And I'm not saying that there isn't still a lot of fear out there about COVID. Of course there is. And some of the fear, if you are older and in a vulnerable group, is justified, it is warranted. But I don't think fear on this scale. And I think the Prime Minister should be much more questioning of the scientific advice he's getting from very much one school of thought in terms of, The science. I think SAGE is far too big. It's absolutely enormous. It seems to have roped in so many academics, none of whom dare to speak out. They're effectively gagged because they'll be on the pale and they won't be up for any government grants in the future if they actually speak out. And Johnson has to balance the possible life-saving benefits of lockdown, the possible life-saving benefits of lockdown. And of course, there's lots of academic work saying that on balance, lockdown actually costs lives when you think of the non-COVID treatments that aren't being done on the NHS, depression and all the rest of it. Mm. He has to balance the possible life-saving benefits of lockdown restrictions with the very definite, absolutely in our face, huge costs of lockdown in terms of health, the impact on the young Loneliness, depression, to say nothing of the economy. I mean, even if you disregard the economy, if, if people involved in this debate can't handle the idea of maybe the economy is important, given that the economy creates all the wealth that makes the NHS possible, mm. then just consider the health implications of lockdown, just on a health-for-health health basis. It now seems that the cost-benefit analysis, in the eyes of lots of people, there's been a Edinburgh University study, but a lot of other academic research coming out as well. On balance, lockdown is costing lives before you even consider the impact on lives of the subsequent massive economic fallout.
1: But you said, didn't you, in your column in the Sunday Telegraph that... Talk of a magic money tree needs to stop. And there was a, a stupefying figure that, you know, between April and September, the government spent 246 billion more than it raised in taxes. And isn't one of the things that's happening, Liam, as a consequence of this is we've got Marcus Rashford running this very successful campaign to get free school dinners extended into the holidays. And look, I don't want government policy being made by unelected footballers, let alone unelected people on Twitter. I really don't want that. But what's happening is because of this huge splurge of money, if you've got the government giving a management consultant seven and a half thousand pounds a day to fail to make test and trace work. How on earth are you going to justify drawing a line when it comes to children not having enough food in the holidays? I mean, haven't they shot themselves in the foot? I think they
3: have. You wonder what our huge civil services for when there's so much money available for management consultants mm. and all the rest of it. Look, I actually think they should keep schools open during the holidays and do some catch-up teaching as well as providing activities and a meal for kids who want it? I don't think school should be compulsory in the holidays, but if pupils want to attend and their parents want slash need them to attend so they can try and keep, you know, the wolf from the door financially by working, then that should be allowed to happen. The problem is that's the obvious thing to do, but Johnson dare not do it because that would mean actually having to have a difficult conversation with the teaching unions. Who, oh, we're not going to have that. We're working very hard. We're all working very hard. Do some work in the holidays. Like No one else gets seven, eight, nine, ten weeks off a year or whatever it is. Do some work for your public sector pension that you're going to have for the rest of your life that hardly anyone else has outside of the public sector. I'm not having a go at all teachers, but I am having a go at some and I'm having a go at the union leaders. They should be coming forward and rather than saying, oh, let's cancel all the exams, mm. saying, no, let's get the kids in school in holidays. Let's all put our shoulder to the mill. Let's work our way out of this. And while the schools are open in the holidays, of course, there are free school meals for people who qualify For free school meals.
1: One ray of hope, I do think, this week is we've seen this formation from Tory MPs, haven't we? About 50 of the Northern Tory MPs, who, let's face it, gave Boris his election victory back in December. And they formed this thing called the Northern Research Group. Seems to be based, doesn't it, on the ERG. People like Esther McVeigh, who's a a leading light in blue-collar conservatism, well, they're banding together now because they're looking at their region of the country and they're saying, hang on a minute, you promised to level us up and all we're doing is being locked into Tier 3 and it looks like the North is going to be left even further behind. So I think that Boris and the government are just going to be facing this battle and this uh, North-South divide is going to become a very interesting battleground.
3: I think Politics has got us into this logjam with the government unable to change its mind, unable to enact a change of strategy, because it will make it look as if everything it's done so far is a mistake. But I think politics will get us out of this in the end. And I think it will be fear over the economy. I think it will be... People losing their livelihoods. I think it will be protests, I'm afraid to say, but I think there's going to be lots of protesting. And I think those protests are going to be led by people, particularly in the regions, the North and the Mm. Midlands, Mm. who are bearing the economic brunt of this lockdown. Hello, listeners.
0: I'm Christopher Hope, interrupting your podcast listening to tell you about another show I know you'll enjoy. It's called The Trump Card, and it's a three-part series with a man who understands President Trump better than most, his friend Nigel Farage.
2: Wow, what a job he did, Mr Nigel Farage. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Mr Farage has been to the White House more than many world leaders. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you. He said, you will be my friend for life. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off? You're dealing with somebody who, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Search The Trump Card wherever you're listening to this podcast or go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump Card.
3: So now our guest pod slot, where we reveal who we've stowed away in the hold of the Planet Normal spaceship. I think it's fair to say, Alison, this week's guest isn't a noteworthy politician or business leader. He's not a leading writer or broadcaster or a celebrity of any kind. He's just a perfectly normal chap, a typical Planet Normal listener, but someone who many other Planet Normal regulars have taken to their collective heart.
1: Yes, Liam, well... Planet Normal listeners will know that we've been in touch with Robert Styler. Robert emailed us a few weeks ago explaining the situation he found himself in with his childhood sweetheart, now my 83-year-old sweetheart, Josephine. And Josephine has been in a care home, and throughout the lockdown, Robert's hardly been able to see her. He's not able to reassure her. Josephine has dementia. He's not able to carry out any of the myriad little tasks that he would love to do for his wife of 66 years. And you'll know, those of you who heard us trying to read out Robert's email, I couldn't because I started crying. And then Liam, very unusually, was, was moved to tears. So we were both a bit of a mess. And I thought, wouldn't it be really interesting to hear Robert's story in more detail, particularly Liam, because he tells me he knows he stands for hundreds of thousands of Roberts and Josephines. I caught up with Robert at his home and all the technical stuff was taken care of by Jamie, who was there with his dad and the dogs. There you go then. Put your headphones on. I should be able to hear you now. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, Robert, it's Alison here. Hello. Hello.
2: <laughs> Morning, Alison. Morning, <laughs> Robert. Nice to speak to you. I'll leave you to it. Grab me if you need me.
1: Morning, Jamie, as well.
2: He's just... Um... <laughs> going to take the dogs out in case they start suddenly start barking. <laughs> you never know to these two.
1: Well, Robert Styler, very warm welcome to Planet Normal. You're talking to us today from your home in Evesham. And thanks to your wonderful emails, Robert, Liam and I and many Planet Normal listeners feel very close to you and to your wife, Josephine, at this terrible time. Robert, can we go back to March and to the start of the pandemic did the care home where Josephine lives did they formally tell you you can't visit Joe any longer?
2: They did yes, of course.
1: were you shocked when you realized that was going to happen
2: oh absolutely i, I you know it it suddenly hits you hard that you suddenly think this may be the last time i'm going to see see Josephine it may be the last time I see my wife. I don't know what's going. No one knows what's going to be round the corner, and once you were cut off as we were on that day it it hits you really hard and you'd realise there's very little you can do about it.
1: When you saw her that last time, there's no way you can say, I mean, Josephine has, we'll we'll talk about this a bit more later, she has dementia, so there's no way she could understand why you would suddenly disappear, is there?
2: Well, not really, no, I don't think so. You see, she, she did deteriorate very, very quickly. I mean, it was really dramatically quickly and we didn't expect it to happen so quickly as it did. But no, uh, those type of things wouldn't last in her memory long enough to be significant, I shall I say.
1: Were you still able to talk to her on the phone or does that not work?
2: They introduced FaceTime fairly quickly, mm. but it, it's not something that's worked at all. Mm. I don't think anyway, because she doesn't understand. I, I can see she doesn't understand what's going on. Who's this person who... She saw every day uh, suddenly appearing on a little screen, and it's I can understand the difficult it is, even for people like myself.
1: Matt Hancock, the health secretary, said that the government's giving eleven thousand free iPads to care homes to enable residents to connect with the loved ones and to help stop the coronavirus outbreak in in the homes. But you've said to me before that you thought that for dementia patients like Josephine, it's a form of torture. What what do you mean by that?
2: Well, if you're trying to communicate something to somebody in that remote fashion, we're talking about me who understands what's going on, speaking to someone who doesn't understand what's going on. I mean, I, I always say to her when I speak to her on there, do you know who it is? You're, you know, just to make sure. Mm. I don't find it, that it's done any good. You know, I don't I see her, but I don't feel that we've achieved anything. The purpose of a visit is absolutely different to speaking to someone who can't really formulate a sentence. When I'm with her, it's a different kettle of fish because we're doing something. We're either looking at old videos of our pre-holidays, pictures. We're talking, we're reading from the paper. We get the Hello magazine and we go through it and we look at (laughs) it. It's a totally different um, operation. The little things like Cutting her nails, cleaning her nails, cleaning her glasses. I know they they do these things, but it's not the same. And uh, I've always done that anyway in, in recent years because she couldn't do it herself, obviously. Those are the things that keep us in contact. Those sitting with her and talking to her. But now what happens now is she relates more to the people who are around her, the ladies who are around her than she does, I think, with me. Because I'm not there.
1: There's also the physical reassurance, isn't it? As being, you said you just wanted to mm. be able to hold her hand. When did you last physically hold Joe?
2: Well, I had the opportunity when we had our diamond wedding anniversary. This was in um, diamond wedding was on the 20th of August. She came home only for a few hours. We had a, a carer come with her. I went to fetch her in the special taxi arrangement and brought her brought her home. It was it was marvellous. I had her hairdresser, who was a hairdresser for thirty-five years, and was really member of the family. Yes, she came, cut her hair, blow dried it, and she was a different person when she was with me at home. And everybody, she recognised everybody. We didn't have many older members of the family, not the not the grandchildren, but the older members, and two or three of the people, my sister and husband, and people who were at our wedding all those years ago.
1: Wonderful.
2: And and that was the last time, really. I've got a picture of us and with her cake and everything, and it was. Was a great, and that's what I would like to do more of. But of course, what it means is if she comes out under the present regime, mm. when she goes back, she's shut away for two weeks in her room. Yes. So she's not allowed to go anywhere. She has no interaction between any of the other people other than her carers themselves.
1: Now, I really wanted to ask you about this because this is something I think that listeners probably don't quite understand, but you obviously really like the home where jo is and you think she's getting lovely care but you talk about this that you said to me that the the updated government policies for visiting arrangements in care homes and that's dated the 21st of September you say that very, very complicated. And you said the sting is in Section 1, Paragraph 8, which states that a recovered outbreak is defined as 28 days or more since the last suspected or confirmed case reported. So basically, Robert, the 28-day rule could mean that you would never visit your loved ones for an indefinite period or perhaps never again. Is, is that correct?
2: Absolutely correct not even in an outside situation is it possible within that 28-day period. And of course, what actually happened is on the 27th day, for example, if four more people were diagnosed as positive, then we start off the next 28 days again. So if you think about it, for as long as people working in the home are diagnosed positive, there would not only be No prospect of any visits inside the um, nursing home. There are no visits outside. In other words, in the outside areas that I was going to see Joe every week, masked and goodness knows
1: what,
2: you couldn't even do that. You could not even do that. So there's absolutely no contact whatsoever.
1: Moving on to this point, you don't think you pose any greater risk to Joe or to the other residents in the home than a member of staff, do you?
2: Absolutely not. In fact, it's I pose less of a risk to Joe and all the people in the nursing home because I live alone. I'm pretty well isolated. Alison, the important thing is they don't trust us. The authorities don't trust us. That's what I think. They don't trust us when we say, look, you know, let's say, for example... I had a test today and in two days time or whatever length of time it takes, I'm clear between the testing and the result. I give them my word that I've not been anywhere, Mm. done anything, seen anybody, had, had any contact with anybody. Then my argument is I should then be able to go and see Joe in the nursing home because I know I'm not taking anything in with me. Because her hair was such an important part of her life as well. She she always immaculate.
1: So Helen Waitley, she's the you've probably seen her, she's the social care minister.
2: I've seen that, yes.
1: She said on the fourteenth of October that there is going to be a pilot scheme enabling relatives like you to be treated as key workers, given those regular tests, enabling you to visit your loved ones. Mm -hmm. Robert, you sounded a bit sceptical in your email about the likelihood of this pilot scheme coming to anything. What what do you think?
2: I think that the first question I ask is, why do we have to have a pilot scheme? Mm. Why haven't we got the brains to formulate an arrangement? It could easily be done by the in the nursing homes themselves by the managers mm. the managers of the nursing homes don't want to have problems with uh, covid i despair with the fact that once the government start to develop a system it's going to be cobbled together it'll cover every angle that you can think of and miss the essentials mm. and that's why i think okay I'm, I'm open-minded okay bring on the pilot scheme but for goodness sake get on with it and how long does it need to last the plan is simple The plan is simple. I don't see as it needs to be piloted. I mean, most of the pilot schemes I've had so far have been pretty disastrous, haven't they? (laughs) I
1: think think they have, looking at the test and trace. So the dementia pressure group, John's campaign, is arguing that the current government guidance on visiting residences is unlawful and breaches human rights. Hmm. Do you think that what is being done to you and Joe breaches your fundamental rights?
2: Well, it certainly has very little connection with humanity, if I put it that way around. Mm. Human rights, uh, of course, I should have rights to, to visit and so should everyone under certain conditions. But it, it isn't humane what, what is happening. You know, we don't know what's around the corner and there's not that much time left for us. No one's taking a lease on our lives, are they, at 83 years of age?
1: You sound... I mean, when I think about the situation, I know Liam and I, when we first read out your email, we were both in tears. I mean, you sound very strong and defiant. Do you ever just break down?
2: Yes, I do. I absolutely do. On FaceTime last Friday, I had to stop. I, I just broke down. I have to be careful. I don't think about it, to be honest, Alison. I have to be very careful because I'm always on the, on the verge It doesn't take much to push me into a position where I sit down and have a good cry. It helps sometimes to do that, but it doesn't help to solve the problem.
1: No, no. And that's why we've got to be defiant. Hmm. I think listeners would really like to know a bit about you and Josephine. You were both born in 1937. You left school and you joined the same company, Reynolds Light Alloys in Redditch. You were seventeen years old then, and you were a metallurgist and Joe was a secretary. Was it love at first sight, Robert?
2: Um, not really, no. <laughs> I wasn't a big hit. Were you not? Not really, no. I mean, we, we had contact for the reason that I, I was at college, so I travelled to Birmingham three or four times a week, and I had to get my card marked, if you like, my attendance yes. card marked. And so I had to take it to Joe because she was the secretary to the personnel manager. I should say we were probably be about 19 at this stage. And um, I used to get my card marked so I could claim my expenses. So I saw her. At least once a week.
1: And what what was it that drew you to her? What did you like about her?
2: She was a very lovely person, to be honest. I don't mm. I never thought I was going to ever achieve anything. But we, we had this link, I suppose it was sport was our link. We had a love of tennis and they built tennis courts at the company, which gave us the opportunity to play, and then we bad matches. So we played together then, but the most significant thing I'm thinking about which really focused our connection, was during the November or December of, I think, the following year when it was snowed. we used to have snowball fights out in, the, in the yard, and I had a pretty good arm because I came from the farm, so I was fairly strong, and I had a good mm-hmm. arm, and I hurled a snowball at a, an individual who stood, would you believe, right in front of Joe's office window. And he ducked and it went straight through. And I mean it went straight through. He shattered the glass Uh everywhere. And then, of course, everybody was laughing and saying, this is it, you'll get the sack now. You've had it. And I had to stand outside the office and wait for Mr Boynton, his boss, to come back and apologise. And I had to sweep it all up and so on. She was not very pleased about that, I can tell you. But the lucky part was she wasn't sat there i think that would have been the end of things i,
1: I was going to say that would have been the end of things you, you did eventually you got married in 1960 bought your first house a semi in studley you said and your first son jonathan was born in um 1963 second son adam was born in 1966 followed by jamie in 1969 and then joe like like my mum did like lots of women of that generation she went to back to work as a a school secretary when the boys were older and then you started your own business aluminium business inspired by Margaret Thatcher Joe joined you in the business how how was it being married and running a business together
2: it was great because at the the time when she was still working she was she was working the business I mean it was pretty hard going for her we got three children um we she went out to work I started the business and she stayed in uh, in, in her job for a, for a year so that we at least we had something to eat. Mm-hmm. She'd come home and she'd work with me in the evenings until we got a, a, sort of established and when she could come and join join um, me full-time. But for the for for first two years, I think she stayed working and she worked pretty well with me the whole of those uh, the rest of the working life together.
1: I was interested to see that... She was loved doing the Daily Telegraph cryptic crossword, was a daily challenge. And you said it was her struggling with that crossword which first gave you a sign that something was wrong.
2: Yes, absolutely was, yes. And I noticed one day uh, that she just pushed it on, one, on side. She didn't really make a fist of it because we used to do it to- together, though I wasn't very good at crosswords myself. But I used to help a little bit. But she she lost interest slowly because she couldn't manage. That was what it was. And she was brilliant, I have to say. She was brilliant at names. Me, I'm useless. She was always brilliant. She knew all the actors and the actresses, see, the footballers. She knew names. She could call, recall all of them. I, I, I've never been very good on names, but she was brilliant. And, of course, that that was a big loss.
1: Was she... Aware what was happening to her or did it did it happen too quickly?
2: yeah no she was aware this is a strange thing she was aware because we went on courses teaching people about dementia. We used to go to a a, a, a weekly class and, and and they were explaining all that what we were going to be faced with in years to come and she did that quite quite willingly and openly she didn't um, didn't didn't phase her in any way. And I have to say, she's never ever cried. She's never broken down as a result of what she's so stoic. She's mm. she's seen it through. She's seen it through without any complaint. She never mind you. She never complained anyway. But she's never complained, and she so she knew what was she knew what was happening to her without a shadow of doubt.
1: In your one of your emails, you told me that you and Josephine are both lifelong conservative mm. voters. But I have to say, this is not the government I thought I had voted for. What what what's shocked you most about the response?
2: The way they've terrified the the, the nation by um, assembling around themselves people who have who also ter- try to terrify the, terrify the nation and it's because of this that the nation has has been terrified and is still terrified, hence the reason 50% of them think we should still be locking down more.
1: You wrote to me, Robert, all I crave for is that Josephine and I should be able to share at least some of the precious time left together, and this administration is preventing us from doing so and will not easily be forgiven. I mean, that's that's strong stuff. Do, do you think that would be hard to forgive them for what's happened?
2: Well, I think, uh, yes, I, I, I don't think, well, many hearts can forgive, but very few can forget. Uh, dementia is one aspect of it, but I've had personal connection with very close friends of mine who effectively said goodbye to their wives on their doorsteps. They never saw their loved one again in a meaningful way in a hospital, They died alone. But these people, Mm. to a certain extent, are even worse position because their cognizance and mental mental ability is still intact. So they know what is happening to them and they can't have their loved ones with them in hospital when when they're in a a sort of end of life situation. That is terrible.
1: I think it's marvellous, Robert, that you're channeling all your love and intelligence to this task of getting justice for Josephine and thousands like her. Now, if I had the power to wave the Planet Normal magic wand and enable you to speak for a few minutes to the Prime Minister, who you voted for so enthusiastically back in December, what would your message to Boris be about what's happened to you and Joe?
2: I mean, he has a massive task. Make no mistake, it's not a job I would ever want to contemplate, that's for sure. But a simple thing, and there are thousands of us like this, all he needs to do really is say, look, sort it out. Do something positive. Come up with a plan, a sensible plan. Listen to other people, perhaps. I don't think he's always listening to the right people. Instead of looking at the overall, the global situation, start to look at some of the, the small things that can be done. If Boris can do anything, he can get... One of these game changers that so far haven't been game changers and get these quick tests implemented and concentrate on the older people and not so much on the hundreds of thousands that they're doing every day hopefully we'll be able to to get somewhere because if we can have short-term tests that only take so 15 minutes or so I think it would transform the Robert and Josephines of this of this world.
1: I can say on behalf of Planet Normal that if this situation doesn't improve co-pilot Halligan and I are going to come down and bust our way into Josephine's care home I think and um <laughs> Liam's a big bloke and I can talk my way around reception so uh <laughs> watch out
2: oh, watch
1: out it's been absolutely delightful having you we're we'll keeping everyone updated on how things are progressing for you and Josephine and I hope you manage to see her and hold her for Christmas and thank you so much Robert for being our guest. It's been wonderful.
2: Well thank you and I am absolutely amazed that I've been able to do this. I really am. And I hope it I hope it does some effect. I hope it does. Anyway, best wishes to you.
3: Wow, what a dignified man. Crikey.
1: I know, isn't he great?
3: Wow. Well done Alison. Well done for talking to him.
1: Well I love talking to him because I think that We read all these stats out, don't we, Liam? And then there's this, the human stories behind this. And, you know, I just paused that bit where Robert said that if there's one infection detected in the home, even as we know, some of these things are just cases. They aren't even positive infections. 28-day period where he can't see Josephine, not even on the outside. Now, what seems to have happened, because I've been doing a lot of research into this this past week, with the help of the amazing Nikki Hurst on Rights for Residents, and that's a wonderful group of women who are campaigning for the government to come up with a humane compromise between balancing the risk of contracting COVID-19 against the devastating mental and physical deterioration that we're seeing in these homes. And remember, Liam, it's not just relatives who can't go in. There's no inspections by CQC inspectors. There's no doctors to check out and find dubious bruises. So these old people who are locked in these homes haven't got any anybody going in from the outside to check on them, which as we know, there've been lots of scandals in care homes in the past. And the other thing is that the life expectancy of someone in a home is 24 months. All right. So they don't have time to waste.
3: Now, Alison, every week, the Planet Normal podcast is published first thing on Thursday. And every Thursday morning at 11, we comment under a Planet Normal article on the Telegraph website, don't we? Mm. But I know you've written a particularly special article for this Thursday that relates precisely to Robert and Josephine.
1: Yes, I decided, Liam, what can we do? This is such an intractable situation. The government seems to be terrified of another care home outbreak and old people's lives are being ruined really and cast into great loneliness and misery to apparently spare the government's embarrassment. So I've written this week an open letter to Helen Waitley. She's the Minister for Social Care. And two and a half weeks ago, Helen Waitley promised a pilot scheme which would enable relatives being able to go in as key workers into the care homes to visit their relatives. But since then, there's been a deafening silence. Campaign groups like Rights for Residents, they've been banging away at this. And there's no reply, Liam. They're literally from actually many of them conservative voters begging for some movement on this incredibly painful issue and absolutely nothing. So I'm writing to Helen Wakeley to challenge her to come back with some answers for people like Robert and Josephine. And I know that's what Robert wants more than anything is some answers.
3: So there's an open letter in the Telegraph from you on Thursday the 29th of October to the social care minister about Robert and Josephine's case. And we'll see if that spurs the minister into action. In fairness to her, I'm sure she's under enormous pressure to fix this situation on the one hand, but also there'll be lots of scientific advice knocking around, won't there, within number 10 saying, no, no, leave things exactly as they are. This is just the collateral damage that comes from lockdown. And I think what you've done in your correspondence with Robert and Josephine, and I think this interview that you just did happened because of other Planet Normal listeners telling us that this story really resonated with them. And we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of emails about Robert and Josephine. I think it may be that we can try and just add to the statistical you know, slew of information that we talk about the real human fallout from what's happening.
1: The thing that's happening, Liam, which when you get close to these things, whether it's with schools or with nurseries or with old people's homes, the thing that's happening is the government comes up with this guidance, all right? They tell the care homes to risk assess and implement a COVID infection control policy. But that guidance is then taken by the care homes as an instruction to lock in the residents and to lock out the loved ones. And all across the country in all sorts of areas, we're seeing this guidance misused, taken to its full Absurd extremes. There's no reason with the care homes why Robert shouldn't be able to meet Josephine outside. There's no possible reason for that. It's absolutely barbaric. As far as I'm concerned, it's a violation of their human rights. And I can't tell you how upset I am about it. I hope some of that's come across because these are actual men and women and their children and their grandchildren being denied the basic contact towards the end of their lives, and for no reason apart from to make the government not look as bad as it does look for letting 22,000 old people out of hospital with COVID and putting them back into care homes. And I'm sorry, but the government doesn't get to spare itself embarrassment at the expense of Robert and Josephine. No, it doesn't. I'm a supporter of this government, but it's an abomination. So let's have some more reader emails. So many of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk Do keep them coming. They're absolutely amazing. Liam and I really love hearing from you. You, our listeners, are part of a fast-growing Planet Normal community of sanity. And we feature half a dozen or so emails, the Star Dispatches, in our Planet Normal column, which appears in the Telegraph and online every Monday. I'm just going to start off with a short one, Liam. This is from Martin. Boris can get stuffed at christmas i don't know about you guys but i'm not really interested in boris johnson's ambition for me to celebrate christmas with my family because i intend to in any case
3: also on the theme of care homes Alison, we've had a very moving email from vanessa similar to the robert and josephine story but somewhat different I'm writing because of the barbaric and cruel regulations with regard to young, mentally handicapped people in care homes, writes Vanessa. I'm glad the elderly are getting some attention, and what is happening to them is also a national disgrace. But people forget there are young people in care homes as well. Young people like my 20 year old, severely mentally handicapped autistic son, Charlie. He loves his care home, and the staff are wonderful. We have him home every weekend when we're allowed. Last week, a teacher at his special needs college, Charlie may have had contact with days previously tested positive for COVID. That meant Charlie was confined to his bedroom for 48 hours until he could get tested. Mm. Now we've become a society that locks up perfectly healthy, young, mentally handicapped people, people in the prime of their lives. This is barbaric. I wasn't allowed to collect my son or I would have been there in a heartbeat and brought him home. What considerations being given to the devastating mental health impact of incarcerating a healthy, strapping, young, mentally handicapped man who, in Charlie's case, cannot speak, read or write? The same rules applying to elderly people in care homes are also being applied to care homes with young, fit and active residents who are at very little risk from COVID. And Vanessa adds Alison that the eldest fellow resident in Charlie's care home is 32 and all the carers are under 50. This is madness, she says. At the very least, families should be allowed to collect residents as long as they agree to self-isolate. This is the real human suffering as a result of stupid, ill-thought-out rules. Do keep going with Planet Normal, says Vanessa. It helps those of us who despair at what's going on.
1: Good heavens. Well... That's why we love listeners emailing us, isn't it, Liam? Because we get to find out something like that extraordinary story. I'd never even thought thought of that. I'd
3: never even thought of that. And of course, she's right.
1: Absolutely. They're healthy young people. The fact that they've got various disabilities doesn't mean that COVID's going to harm them at all. But they're being locked up under this draconian one size fits all policy, which punishes those who are at the end of their lives who actually might like to take the small risk of seeing their families. And someone like Vanessa's son, who clearly would like to see his his family, but isn't allowed to because he counts as somebody vulnerable and he's not vulnerable to the virus. It's absolutely mental.
3: And we should say, we've obviously named names here. We should say that Robert has no criticism towards the care home where Josephine is. No. And Vanessa, indeed, has no criticism towards the care home where her son Charlie is. In both cases, they stress that the care they're receiving is excellent. But what they have concern with is that the care homes feel obliged to impose these rules from above mm. in a maximalist, ultra-legalistic way. And they're trying to stress the human fallout from that. And that's what we're trying to do as well. We're not saying that there's any wrongdoing on the part of the care homes themselves, who in their eyes are abiding with the law and the regulations as they see them.
1: Here's a bit of perspective, Liam, from Betty. I thought you might be interested to learn that in 1957, we had a pandemic also as a result of a virus from China. We were given no information. We never lost a day's work. We were free to go abroad. I went to Switzerland and Italy and life was normal. 40,000 people died, i.e. then 0.07% of the population of approximately 51 million. If you look at the statistics for this year, I believe that as of today's date, 42,268 people have died. Actually, it's slightly more than that now, i.e. 0.6% of the present population of approximately 68 million. Like you, I think they should let us get on with our lives. Thanks for that, Betty. Really interesting.
3: Betty challenging Velma there on the (laughs) statistical front. And by the way, I should say, Vanessa, who wrote to us about her son, Charlie, she did also say in her email, more Scooby-Doo noises, please, Liam. They're the highlight of my week. I just thought I'd add that.
1: Sorry. No, come on. Come on now. I mean, you know. (laughs) It's true. It's true. What have you you promised that poor woman to get her to say that? I mean, that is ridiculous.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She said it of her own free will. (laughs) Here's one from Kathy. Chatting to my hairdresser this week, she's used every penny of the backup money she'd put aside to support her business through emergencies. She's obeyed every frequently changing safety regulation. She's kept all her employees in work, Mm -hmm. despite her salon having to operate at half capacity. She's put herself on half wages. How many of the politicians imposing these restrictions have done that? Despite all that, Cathy tells me this lockdown is the finish of her business. The business she's worked so hard to build up over 13 years. My heart goes out to her. And our heart goes out to her too, Cathy. Because this is the real implications of this lockdown, Big businesses are doing well. The supermarkets are doing fine. It's great if you're a big corporate in many cases. It's the small businesses that employ most people in this country that are really suffering.
1: And this is same theme from David here, Liam. What a pity all those bureaucrats didn't have a cut in their pay at the beginning of this crisis. They would have been more amenable to reviewing and discussing alternative strategies if they shared some of the pain they have inflicted on the rest of us. They have forgotten that it is their duty to serve and not to rule.
3: And here's one from Robin. Any change in government policy would mean the politicians, bureaucrats and their scientific advisors would have to change their mind, he writes. And the big problem with groupthink is that the longer it goes on, the more difficult it is to admit failure. And here comes Dave writing to Planet Normal. Keep up the good work. The Planet Normal podcast and column are beacons of common sense in a sea of political incompetence and mendacity. P.S. writes Dave, Maureen from Barnsley for Prime Minister. As someone in my 70s, she expresses my views exactly.
1: And Stephen says very much in tune with Dave, Maureen from Barnsley, she should be given immediate honorary citizenship of Planet Normal. Yeah, I think we could get her on the rocket, Liam. What do you think? (laughs) We could get her in the pilot seat, (laughs) Alison. She'd give you what for, I think, young
3: man. So that's it for our latest voyage to planet normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry. Planet Earth isn't getting any easier. Keep the faith until next Thursday when we're back for another blast-off in our rocket of right thinking our capsule of common sense
1: and remember that every thursday at 11 a.m co-pilot halligan and i chat to fellow planet normal citizens via the telegraph website just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11 a.m and 12 noon we'll reply to them and this thursday we're going to have photographs of robert and josephine which i know you're all going to love so come along and join us
3: Any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the good ones? Check out the helpful article explaining all things podcasts on the Telegraph website. You'll find the link in the show notes to this episode.
1: And if you're enjoying Planet Normal, why not leave us a five star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts? If you don't know how to do that, again, drop us an email at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We've had so many lovely comments and they cannot all be written by Halligan. I, I don't think they can anyway. (laughs)
3: so as planet normal fades out of sight once more an earth hose interview a scandal (laughs) thanks to our brilliant producers reese gunter louisa wells and elliot Lampitt, and our editor theo leloudis until our next voyage it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him